Welcome to our first HopeCast. My name is Father Francis. I became a Montfort missionary more than 42 years ago. One of my first assignments as a young Montfort missionary was to teach English as a second language in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of, of Brooklyn. I worked with Haitian refugees because I could speak French. It was pathetic French, but I could speak French. I probably learned more from those refugees about the importance of family and life loving and forgiving, that I had learned any other place. Shortly thereafter, I was assigned to finish up my studies for the priesthood in Washington, D.C., and while there, I became principal of an inner-city junior high school. I really felt God was calling me there because I became a priest because I really wanted to work with the poor and vulnerable in our midst. The kids that came to our school in those days came not just to be educated, but to be fed, to be clothed, to be literally taken care of. They were extraordinary, and I really felt a connection. I felt God's presence in them. Uh, In 1978, my religious superior came to me and said, we'd like to transfer you. Now, I really thought that I was going to get the option to go to the third world, which is why I joined the Montfort Missionaries to to work in Nicaragua. Uh, And so when he said... Uh, my my provincial said, we'd like to send you to Port Jefferson, Long Island. That wasn't exactly the third world I had in mind. I didn't even know where it was on the map. But they wanted me to go there because the school there was failing. And I went on for 20 minutes with this man who was 40 years my senior, trying to help him understand that I didn't think I had the skill set to work in an affluent middle, upper middle class community. He indulged me and then he said, thank you very much, Father. Appreciate your input, but you'll go to Port Jefferson. You'll like going to Port Jefferson. If you know what's good for you, you'll do a good job in Port Jefferson. Well, I've been there 42 years. I'll leave the good job stuff up to other people. But I have to tell you, I went with great reluctance, not thinking that I had the skill set to work in a a middle-class community because I felt always called to work with the poor. I realized that I had a totally twisted understanding of poor. I always measured poverty in material terms. The kind of poverty that I found on the North Shore of Long Island was much more debilitating than the poverty of economics. It was a poverty of spirituality, a poverty of care and concern, compassion and love. And that became very, very powerfully uh, a part of who I am today within the first few months of that assignment. Although I was there to build up the youth community and to strengthen the the school that was on the verge of closing, I covered two hospitals in the community at night because the priests that were assigned there were 75 years old. And I saw more in the first four months than most people see in an entire ministry in terms of death and suffering, decapitation, overdose with drugs, uh, suicide, and violence. It was a baptism of fire that caused me really to step back and ask myself, what am I doing? What is my ministry really supposed to be about as a a person of the gospel? I started a youth mass that was very popular. We had hundreds of kids coming to mass on Sunday night, and we had great engagement. And I shared with them an experience that really changed my life and ultimately contributed to me starting Hope House Ministries 41 years ago. I shared with them an experience that I had that particular year, right after Thanksgiving. It was the Sunday after Thanksgiving that I preached. 
That Friday, I was called to a home overlooking the harbor uh, by the police because I agreed to be a, a mediator for them. So I thought it was some kind of conflict with parents with their college kids home from, from, from college for Thanksgiving weekend, and it wasn't that. There were two police cars in the driveway. The father of the family was standing on the porch, very distraught. I knew him from church. He said, Father, could you please go into my son's room? I walked into the man's son's room, and I saw three police officers standing around the man's son. They had just cut him down. He had hung himself. He was 10 years old. There was no suicide note. He had horrible rope burns around his neck. He wasn't a problem child in school. But obviously a little boy that young who was in so much pain, that for him the best way to stop the pain was to take his own life. A few days later I celebrated uh, his life uh, in the massive Christian burial and I looked at a packed church that were numb, not being able to believe why they had come. A little casket with a 10-year-old boy in front of us. And quietly as I looked out at that crowd, I said to myself, how blind and deaf are we that we do not see the cries of a child in our midst? And I realized that that's the real poverty that I was facing in that community, that we weren't seeing the, the, the cries of the poor, materially and otherwise, that we didn't see the dysfunction of so many of our young people. And so I shared that uh, that Sunday night. And a group of young people waited for me after Mass, and they wanted to thank me for the very moving homily that I gave. And then the thing that changed me forever is a senior, his boy that I got to know, he said, you know, you always give such a good homily, Father, but what is the church really doing to make a difference? I couldn't respond to him. I went back to the rectory that night and I tossed and turned and I said, he's right, what is the church really doing? And so drawing on my uh, social work training and my community organizing skills, I decided that we needed to have a community meeting to talk about what was going on among our young people. And this is in the 80s, uh, that drugs and alcohol were just beginning to infect our schools. People twice my age said, you know, very politely, you're crazy, no one's gonna come to this meeting. 150 people came to that meeting. And that meeting gave birth to the first Hope House, which was a residence for uh, 16 to 21-year-old runaways that were living in the street, in the beach, in the woods. More young people than people wanted to face in this wonderful community that for lots of reasons couldn't live at home. Never did I think that small little house on the grounds of an Episcopalian monastery would put me on a journey for the now... 41 years that I've been doing this. Grace after grace has empowered me to stay the course. And in the 41 years of reaching out, many things have developed under the umbrella of Hope House Ministries. Pax Christi, a shelter for the homeless, Sienna House, a program for abused women, our mental health freestanding clinic for those that are battling mental health issues, the Colby Center, which is an outpatient treatment center for, for addiction, our transitional residence for people coming out of jail, two alternative schools, and then the heart of the work, Hope Academy, which has two campuses, one on Main Street in Port Jefferson and one uh, on the grounds of that Episcopalian monastery. Five years ago, we were blessed. And God blessed us in a way that enabled us to purchase that monastery that was closing. And now we have five acres and over 50 men who are in early recovery trying to reclaim their life. I don't regret one day, one minute, one hour of the past 41 years. 
It has been a journey. It has had its ups and downs. But it's God's grace and really seeing Christ in all of the broken, wounded people that I have been fortunate to encounter on the journey that have caused me to deepen my faith and my conviction. Working with people with addiction, I've come to appreciate that that affliction affects everyone. Everyone listening to this podcast knows someone that's battling addiction. And unfortunately, we have not found our way to treat addiction appropriately. Our insurance companies have made it a money pit. Our government promises the world delivers nothing. I've been working for these past 41 years solely on donations because government money sets people up for failure. Insurance right now pays, they say they'll pay for 28 days, they'll pay for 11 days, and they'll tell you after 11 days that it's not a medical emergency that you'll be in residential care. I want you to talk to the family that I worked with who listened to their insurance company. They had a 25-year-old son who was a heroin addict, middle-class family, and they listened to what insurance said. Let him try outpatient treatment first, and if he doesn't do well in that, then we'll pay for him to go away for 30 days. Well, it didn't work for him. He came out of outpatient treatment and met his his dealer, and he overdosed and died in the parking lot. And that family has to live with that cross and that burden for the rest of their days. And that's just one of many stories that I could share that only further emboldened me to speak out about the grave injustice in a system that says it cares for people but does little or nothing to really help people reclaim their lives. Addiction is infectious. The pandemic has only made it worse. And more and more people are suffering, and we have less and less services. The young men that come our way sign a contract for a year to 18 months. I don't care if they're rich or poor. I don't care if they're Catholic, Muslim, Jewish, atheist. I don't care if they're gay or straight. I don't care if they're black, white, or Asian, or Native American. They're all treated in the same way. If they're motivated for treatment and we have the bed, we will take them. I don't care about anyone compensating us for that. What's important is that that young person is able to develop the skills to cope with an addictive life and to be able to become a productive citizen, making a difference in the world. Gratitude is fundamental, along with addressing a holistic approach to treatment, which deals with body, mind, and spirit. We have a model that's been working for a long time. Our recidivism rate is only like 4 or 5% compared to the showcase treatment programs that have a recidivism rate of 88%. I'm not happy when we lose a young man. And since the pandemic has unfolded, we've lost a number that didn't have the coping skills because of mental health issues. Addiction is not just one-sided. It's not just drugs and alcohol. It also must include mental health. That's why our approach is holistic. I've been blessed because in the years doing this, I've been fortunate to, to walk the journey with, with men that have really reclaimed their life and have made a powerful difference. Some have become lawyers and teachers and social workers, but their common bond is that they give back as a way of saying thank you for what God has given them in their journey of recovery. A high school dropout who was able to get his high school equivalency and then go on to St. Joseph's College, graduate at the top of his class and go to law school, 
and become a practicing attorney. He's married and has three children. At the beginning of this journey, he was facing four to nine years in prison because he was a heroin addict selling drugs. Those stories of hope are what we need to hang on to as we try to raise the awareness of other people. I'd like to conclude this podcast with something that was given to me by a young man that that lived with me. Uh, It's really uh, a forward from his book that he wrote after he embraced recovery. On Ash Wednesday, 2002, at the age of 22, I was sitting in the waiting area of Mercy Medical Center on Long Island with my mother and a dear friend of mine. I was waiting to go through my first intake process in the hopes of addressing my anxiety, depression, and drug addiction. This would be the start of a four-year journey in and out of different inpatient psychiatric hospitals and drug rehab centers, numerous outpatient programs for mental health, an addiction, and an overdose that left me in a coma for three days in a hospital. On May 31st, 2006, I met Father Francis, and I walked through the doors of Hope House Ministries. Thus began my journey back to healing. I have since gone back to school and received my master's degree in social work from Fordham University, and in 2015 opened the Community Growth Center a nonprofit holistic health center for self-discovery and contemplative healing. The specific details surrounding my past are not significant to this book, other than to give thanks to God, for I was lost and now I am found. It is my belief that our healing requires a holistic approach, healing the mind, body, and spirit, embracing the practice of contemplative prayer, and the process discussed in this book, with the guidance and support from trained spiritual directors and counselors, I have been able to lean into all three areas of my being, mind, body, and spirit. At times in the past, I've also used medication to help support my healing process. When we break a bone, we use a cast to assist our recovery, helping us to eventually advance to the physical therapy in order to fully heal. Similarly, medication, when part of a larger treatment plan can serve as a valuable support, helping to move us forward so that we might fully heal. My journey and the process discussed in this book has allowed me to find true healing and the peace that surpasses all understanding. This book is for all those who have felt lost or incomplete. I pray that it helps you find your way back home. I was privileged two years ago, to preside at that young man's wedding. He now is the director of uh, an interfaith, uh, multi-ethnic association on one of our local university's campuses, using the skills that he developed on his journey to recovery and wellness. I remember when this young man walked into Hope House Ministries when he was barely 24 years old. He couldn't even look at me. He wore a hoodie, and he kept looking at the ground all the time. I realized that this young man was really in a bad way. He was a recovering heroin addict who had a wide range of mental health issues. What I did not know, because the papers that came with him did not underscore this, he had been medicated and over-medicated for years. Instead of people treating him like a person and trying to understand what would best treat 
the various mental health issues that he was dealing with. So thanks to our very competent psychiatrist, we suggested that he get a complete workup so that we really could help him with the appropriate medications. He agreed to do that. And as he was leaving to go to the hospital for that complete workup, uh, he said to me, Father, someone tomorrow will come and take my things. And I said to him, I said, Michael, why? This is your home. You're going to come back here. A few weeks ago, Michael stood before a large group at a recovery gathering and shared his story. And he talked about that moment. And he said to those people that were there that that was a transformative moment for him because all of his years in active addiction and battling mental health, he never felt welcomed or at home any place. And it was that sense of welcome and feeling at home that turned his life around and opened his heart to reclaim who he truly is. He's an extraordinary young man, an extraordinary uh, practitioner uh, of mental health, and is just doing a phenomenal job. His story and so many other stories like his inspire me every day to stay the course, to do more. These are troubling times. We live in a world that is divided, a world that is overwhelmed with all sorts of social injustice, all kinds of prejudice and discrimination. But I think we need to stand tall. We need to be beacons of hope, beacons of light in a world that hovers in darkness. And I think all of us need to have the the willingness to give voice to those that battle the affliction of addiction. We need to challenge our government to be more attentive to reaching out to those that are struggling, to educate families, to know what resources are there for them, and most importantly, tell the truth about addiction. Don't delude people. Don't set up programs of treatment that are based just on finances. Set programs up that are going to help people get better and continue the journey. We're hoping through HopeCast to give people hope, but also to educate people, encourage people, help people to believe again that each and every one of us have the power to make a difference that really does count. Thanks for joining us. Take-